This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The writer and activist James Baldwin grew up in a majority white America that saw white American lives as standard and universal, and black American lives as different and particular. But in his 1963 book, The Fire Next Time, Baldwin showed that his life as a black man in America was universally human. I mean, he's participating within a tradition that is insisting that the quotidian of black life is in fact, right, the path for him, right, as one who's that comes out of that experience to the universal, right? It's sort of refusing the logic and wish that has insisted uh, uh, um, that the particular and the universal will at, were at odds with one another and that, right, that the black experience, especially could never transcend the realm of particular, right? That his writing is going to bring readers to a view of the universal by mining the specifics of his own experience and the Black experience, right? This is, I think, very much the space of the traditional Black modernist writing in which he is located. The degree to which his own story becomes a space for thinking about these questions is in some ways that's his gift, right, to American readers, to his brothers, black and white, um, is that invitation to wrestle more honestly with this legacy that is the nation's. My name is Yosef Saret. I'm a professor of religion and African-American studies uh, at Columbia University. Baldwin chose the title, The Fire Next Time, to signal a warning. I mean, this was... The, the, the prophecy, right? He's appealing to the spirituals, but also appealing to the biblical story of Noah, where, right, no more water. The, the sort of idea that um, if the nation does not rise to wrestle with the fullness of its history of white supremacist violence and colonialism, right, his argument was that these things were burning. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Yosef Sorat to discuss James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. James Baldwin was born in 1924 in Harlem, New York City. His mother was from Maryland, but moved north to New York during the Great Migration. So when we're talking about the Great Migration, we're talking about the mass migrations of millions of African-Americans from, on one hand, rural environments in the South to urban environments in the South, but then at the same time from the South to the North, right? And so you have millions of African-Americans uh, around the period of World War I um, leaving the South, Mississippi, right, the, what is often referred to as the Black Belt, which had been the home of plantation slavery in the aftermath of World War I, 
throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s, you have millions of African-Americans leaving uh, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi, um, and what have you, and migrating to, uh, of course, out west to California, but especially, right, to the urban north um, with stopping in places like Memphis and Nashville, but ending up in cities like uh, Detroit, uh, Philadelphia, where there had been a historic African-American community going back to much earlier, but also to New York, where Baldwin's family lands. So by the end of the 60s, right, uh, if in, in the 19-teens, the rural South was the primary home of African-American life, by the end of the 60s, we have a situation in which, right, uh, Black folk have become thoroughly urbanized, if you will. Baldwin's mother left his biological father before he was born and married a Baptist preacher in Harlem. His new stepfather was harsh and domineering, so young Baldwin spent a lot of time out of the house, often at the library. Baldwin's talent for writing emerged early. When he was 10, he wrote a play that one of his teachers directed. When he was 13, he published an article in his school's magazine. And in high school, he worked as the literary editor for his school's publication. Despite his passion for writing, his stepfather decided he should follow in his footsteps and pursue a career as a preacher. Baldwin wasn't really fond of the church, but he did end up becoming a junior minister when he was still in high school. He later reflected on this decision by saying, quote, I was so afraid of everything else that in a way I ended up with the devil I knew. Even though his heart wasn't in it, he was good at preaching. He quickly started drawing larger crowds than his stepfather did. But by age 17, he'd had enough. His time in the church had led him to see Christianity as a racist, hypocritical practice built on false premises. After his foray in the church, uh, exits the church and right, owns an aspiration as a, uh, a writer. And so he's very much studying and reading profusely right, um, the, the sort of range of the American literary tradition. After graduating from high school, Baldwin moved from Harlem to New York's Greenwich Village. It was the early 1940s, and Greenwich Village was bursting with artistic and cultural energy. Baldwin became friends with a painter named Buford Delaney. Baldwin and Delaney had a lot in common. They were both gay, black, and loved the arts. Delaney was a great role model for Baldwin because he was a successful black artist in New York, something Baldwin aspired to be. Delaney introduced Baldwin to jazz and taught him how to see the world through the eyes of an artist, encouraging him to look at things critically, to see beneath the surface, and find beauty in things that are seemingly ugly. Around this time, Baldwin began to spend more time on his writing. He wrote mostly short stories, essays, and book reviews. Things were going well for him, but nearly every day he experienced some form of racism. One evening in 1948, he finally had enough. Baldwin went to see a movie with a friend and afterwards decided to get something to eat. He intentionally went to a restaurant that only served white people. When the waiter refused to serve him, he picked up a water glass and threw it at her. The glass shattered the mirror behind the bar and Baldwin ran out of the restaurant. He needed an escape from racism. One of Baldwin's mentors, the American author Richard Wright, was living in Paris and he encouraged Baldwin to join him. At age 24, Baldwin left New York for Paris. Baldwin's time in France was liberating. In 1953, he published his first novel, called Go Tell It on the Mountain, a semi-autobiographical story of a young man growing up in Harlem. 
Two years later, he published a collection of essays called Notes of a Native Son, which was a critique of Richard Wright's novel, Native Son. The first uh, black literary celebrity, if you will, um, Richard Wright in Native Son, which becomes a book of the month club celebration and sort of launches liter- Richard Wright to, to literary fame, um, but then also becomes uh, the subject of Baldwin's critique in Notes of a Native Son, especially within uh, the context of his essay, Everybody's Protest Novel. Richard Wright published Native Son in 1940, and it was a huge success. The book was categorized as a protest novel because it was a fictional work that dramatizes racial injustice through its impact on the characters in the novel. Native Son tells the story of a poor young black man named Bigger Thomas, who goes to work for a wealthy white family in Chicago and accidentally kills a young white woman. Throughout the novel, Wright does not apologize for Thomas's crime, but shows how he is a product of a society built to oppress black Americans. Native Son helped explain to white Americans the racial divide in America and showed the ways that the dominant white society systematically oppressed black Americans. The success of the book made Wright a public figure. However, Baldwin felt that there was more to say. He was quite critical of protest novels, and he shared his view in his 1955 collection of essays called Notes of a Native Son. This sort of critique of the protest novel, um, he likens it or locates it within a tradition going back to Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? And the idea and the argument is that novels within this tradition traffic in racial caricatures and stereotypes and don't give you a sense of the full complexity of uh, humanity. Harriet Beecher Stowe published Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852. Like Native Son, it attempted to portray Black Americans in a more human light. But Baldwin thought these novels did just the opposite. They were limiting in their portrayal of Black Americans. So he uh, critiques, I guess what you could say, you know, a case of literary patricide where he's attacking, the, right, going after, taking down his mentor as a you know, sort of key way of differentiating his own vision. Was it... Um that the black characters were flat because they were tools rather than humans, that they were meant to reveal injustice, but through that they strip kind of the complex humanity, the flawed details that actually mark a, a real life human being. That's exactly right. So, you know, for, for Baldwin, he, you know, he begins in that critique by looking at Uncle Tom's cabin, right? And so looking at the figure of Uncle Tom, right? These caricatures are fig- these characters, right? Which he would call them caricatures, right? Are less about a complicated human being with a range of emotions and experiences, and sort of an individual. And this is very much a right focus of the modernist novel of the sort of individual uh, individuation. Um, and, and they're more stand-ins for a particular theme, for a particular problem, for a particular question. And so we move in Baldwin's critique from a discussion of Uncle Tom to, right, Bigger Thomas, the central protagonist in Native Son, right, where, again, Richard Wright is working within a tradition of the naturalist novel, which part of the goal is to demonstrate the degree to which a set of structural arrangements reduce human capacity for flourishing, right? And so a set of structural forces compound and come down upon Bigger that place real constraints on his ability to flourish as a human being. That's part of the point of the tradition, right, um, of naturalism is to show what these structures of oppression do to individuals 
but right, Baldwin's point is that right, sort of the critique, the argument is that Richard Wright, uh, through taking on the tradition of naturalism, naturalism falls prey to a similar critique. We get less of uh, a capacity to see the complexity of what a young black man going up within the tradition of, segre- you know, within the context of racial segregation, within the context of the urban north in a place of Chicago. Um, you don't get to see the complexity of what it would be mean to be Bigger Thomas rather than getting to see Bigger Thomas as representative of the plight of young African-American men, right? Baldwin wasn't interested in writing protest novels. He wanted his writing to embrace the universal. He is, you know, part of a new generation of Black writers who squarely see themselves within a tradition of modernism, of the sort of modern, the, the modernist novel, the sort of emphasis on form and the sort of claim of sort of universal literature over against sort of political themes. And so Baldwin, alongside uh, a figure like Ralph Ellison, whose book, uh, Invisible Man, his first novel comes out around the same time and wins uh, the, the National Book Award. Or, um, and Baldwin's uh, Go Tell and Melson was also shortlisted for the novel uh, for, for the same award around the same time, actually as early as, as the 1940s, late, late 1940s. There is an effort to emphasize experimentalism and formalism over against racial themes, right? And this is sort of part of a tradition that going back to the 1920s, Black writers have been grappling with what Langston Hughes describes as the 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 was the the Negro artist in the racial mountain, what the Black visual artist uh, Romare Bearden writes about in in in, in the uh, the 50s, as the dilemma of the Negro the dilemma of the Negro artist, right? This sort of idea, regardless of how one writes, uh, the Black writer is placed in a particular kind of category because of the racial descriptor, right? And so there's a tradition of writing within, through, and against that. Uh, to argue that black writing ought not be subject to the same sort of racial logics of Jim Crow, of racial segregation or to sociological categories, that black writing ought to be subject to the same literary and aesthetic categories. Um, But how does one insist on creative expression um, and independence of mind in light of a set of expectations whether from racial leadership on one hand or from a white public in readership on the other that expects certain things, whether thematically, aesthetically, or structurally, uh, from Black writers. And so you see um, both uh, Ellison and Baldwin, right, sort of uh, making a claim for the universal and for the formal excellence of Black folk culture. And for Baldwin, especially, this is seen in the context of the Black church, right? That here is the stuff of human art. And so Baldwin is making that critique and claim, right, uh, within his sort of nonfiction essay writing in uh, Notes of a Native Son and something like uh, Everybody's Protest Novel. And then he enacts it and performs it in Go Tell It on the Mountain. So he... He publishes these works in the 50s. They're well-received. He keeps publishing. What else does his life and literary career look like until his death? So he does continue to publish. He produ- publishes other novels. Things that are there in 
go tell it on the mountain, he continues to wrestle with sort of, right, the story of a young man coming of age, grappling with a religious tradition, wrestling with uh, sort of sorting through questions of sexual desire, right? These are, right, Baldwin's own sexuality. He's writing about sexuality sort of in his own sort of movement between Black Harlem and the downtown scene, so he's wrestling with these questions. Then um, he and he writes about this first in the context of Paris, right, as a space that's seen as uh, liberating as it relates to the context of the racial and gender mores of a, of a Harlem and of the United States in Giovanni's room, right? But it's not a black space that he's writing about. It's in a different context. And then he brings these themes together in his sixth novel. Uh, just above my head, which right goes again, right where he now is wrestling with questions of race and homosexuality and identity, but within the context of the African American experience. So you know we can see all these things across as a through line uh, through his his, his novels, um, but then we can also see the degree to which he is writing on a range of questions about race and about identity and about citizenship. Um, right up through we think about piece, uh, collections of essays like No Name in the Street, um, and and so you could like I think to to look at go, um, the fire next time at the start of the 1960s, right? Baldwin still has a couple decades ahead of him um, before his death in 1984, and so this is very much I mean it's it's very much a text between the times and also in the middle of his life um, in thinking about his literary production and his career. Baldwin stayed in France for about nine years. Back home in the U.S., the civil rights movement was just beginning. Black Americans and their allies were campaigning to end legalized racial discrimination and segregation. The movement had some initial success. In 1954, in the Supreme Court case Brown v. Board of Education, the court ruled that racial segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. Many white Americans fought integration. In 1957, a 15-year-old black student named Dorothy Counts enrolled in a previously all-white school in Charlotte, North Carolina. On her first day of school, she was met with an angry mob who yelled, spat, and threw rocks at her. When Baldwin saw news coverage of the event, he decided to move back home and join the fight for civil rights. He returned to the United States in 1957 and became an active member in the civil rights movement. He continued writing and in 1962 published two essays that would become The Fire Next Time. The first essay, My Dungeon Shook, Letter to My Nephew on the 100th Anniversary of the Emancipation, was originally published in a magazine called The Progressive in 1962. What is that first essay arguing? How does it make its argument? So the first shorter essay, which is right almost often overlooked, right, the, um, is, is a letter to his nephew, right? Sort of basically about the inheritance and burden of right, growing up as a young black man. It's, I mean, it's akin to the sort of conversation um, that we often talk about as the, the talk, right? Like sort of it's a sort of preface uh, Baldwin's wishes for his his nephew, um, uh, and t- and thinking about again as it's my my dungeon shook uh, letter to my nephew on the hundredth anniversary of emancipation, sort of the question of unrealized freedom and what what does that mean for a young black man coming of age in the nineteen sixties, right? As right, we're talking about this 
you know, the years after Brown v. Board, but the years before the passing of civil rights legislation. Uh, what does it mean to, for his nephew to live in the body of a young black man? Um, and so the sort of perils and promises, his hopes and desires for, uh, for his nephew. What is he trying to help his nephew understand? One of the themes that shows up throughout the book, right, and, and, and I think across two, the, both the essays, is a, a, a brute recognition of the realities of, a rate, of race and the degree to which that they can lead you to a place of bitterness rightfully, right? Baldwin write else, elsewhere that, right, to be relatively conscious as a Black person in the world is to be in an almost constant state of rage, right? Yet, right, the exhortation, right, in this loveless world is to push towards this idea of love, right? To resist and refuse that bitterness, even if that is your portion every day. So there's a degree to which, right, Baldwin wants to exhort uh, his nephew to uh, embrace uh, the fullness of his own humanity, to not accept the expectations of the world for him uh, as a young black man, right? He points to the language of mediocrity, right? Where, uh, right, he is inspiring his nephew towards excellence even though the expectation in the world by virtue of the color of his skin would be for him uh, to embrace mediocrity. And so Baldwin is uh, on one hand attempting to be brutal, brutally honest about how the world views him and his nephew and what the world might present to them and expect of them, but insisting uh, that his duty is to not concede to those forces. Baldwin doesn't shy away from telling his nephew of the brutal realities of life for a black man in America. But despite the racial divide in this country, Baldwin's message is a unifying one. Baldwin, throughout the book, wrestles and is exhorting his readers, and in this case his nephew, to recognize the persistence and power of race and the nation's capacity willfully to ignore the history, to deny it, right? To render it invisible. Uh, and yet the insistence that in the, in, despite that divide, that uh, his fellow citizens, white folk are still, right? His brothers and sisters. And right, so we see this at the very much at the end of his letter to his nephew, despite the, reasonable response to the realities of Jim Crow and white supremacy, uh, the refusal to allow those logics to govern one's relationship to across the color line, right? So this insistence that, uh, right, and here I think about just the final page where it says, but these men are your brothers, right? Um, and he's thinking here, of course, about other young black men growing up, but Baldwin continues to expend extend the language of brotherhood across the lines of race. And so um, America is home. Black and white are brothers and sisters, regardless of the ways in which white supremacy continues to bear down on those relationships. Uh, and Baldwin extends that argument, that insistence on a kind of humanity across the lines of race, uh, of brotherhood. Baldwin's hope for racial harmony was met with criticism. 
And this is at a particular moment, right, where uh, the sort of tensions between, right, civil rights organizing, uh, which, right, associated with a figure like Martin Luther King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, the sort of tradition of nonviolent resistance, is increasingly uh, growing in tension with a, a younger generation of activists and artists associated with the right black power, which was also right a longer standing tradition within African-American culture, but it is reaching the fore um, in the 1960s, right? It's in these early 60s that a figure like Stokely Carmichael, who had been right in Mississippi and marching alongside King, gives right, voice to this uh, growing intensity uh, and mobilization around the language of Black power as a critique of the perceived limitations of an integrationist politic. And so as a sort of the, the artistic iteration of a Black nationalist politic that sort of is very clear about the limits of the nation state for providing Black people with emancipation and freedom, there's a clear frustration with an insistence on the universalism, on a vision of human brotherhood across the lines of race that remains a through line. The second essay in The Fire Next Time is called Down at the Cross, Letter from a Region of My Mind. Could you take us through what it, what is the argument of this essay? Yeah, so I mean, it's deeply personal, right? From the outset, it's his own story of religious crisis. This is where he begins in his teenage years and right, an account in some ways you could say as a psychology of religion about what he was going through as a young man uh, in Harlem, wrestling with sort of the pronounced racial politics of uh, Harlem at this particular moment in time, which is to say in, right, segregated Harlem of the Great Migration and what were perceived to be the limit opportunities for him as a young Black man, the expectations that he has already sort of written about for in thinking about his nephew in the right the, the earlier essay, talk, talking about his efforts to come of age with his own black sexual body as a young man in Harlem, and that his what drives him into the church is a deep anxiety, right? And so a desire for safety from society, a desire for safety from himself, right? A deep shame about his body. It's all these forces that lead him into the church by, right, in, 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 with the invitation of a preacher figure who promises to protect him, right? Uh, and so the desire for that safety uh, driving him into the church in the, in, in the face of a range of forces that are compounding on his life as an adolescent, uh, young Black man in Harlem. And so on one hand, he gives, a, I think, a very powerful account um, logically, but also at the effect, affective level of why church is so valuable, uh, why church meets a whole host of human needs, why church meets a whole host of specific human needs for Black people at a particular moment in time and space. And yet he then also gives us a story of how his fall from faith right, takes place because he identifies within the context of church, right, what we might think of as uh, sort of adolescent critiques of hypocrisy, if you will, right, as it relates 
to race, as it relates to gender. What he also uh, identifies within church is a sort of space that in which different kinds of hatred are perpetuated, right? Hatred of the other, sort of an inversion of the racial logics, self-hatred and shame within a doctrine of theology that equates rightness with whiteness, right? So the degree to which the church is a space that both affirms Black people, but also participates in a logic of white supremacy. And so Baldwin, right, talks about the power of this church, but then also the limits of what a church can do and can't do for Black people. And within that context, right, the appeal of a different kind of religiosity. Although Baldwin left the church, it never really left him. His time in the church influenced his writing and worldview for the rest of his life. And he's not exceptional in that regard, right? This is the American literary tradition and it very much is the case, but he is exceptional at it, right? In this degree, the degree to which he can draw on the aesthetics of Black church to create, you know, what scholars refer to as a sort of structure of feeling that conjures the Black church experience, even as he has sort of left behind the sort of orthodox teachings uh, of the tradition. What what should we know that might be helpful in understanding Baldwin about about Black church culture? Historically, right, the earliest Black churches were primarily Baptist and Methodist. And here we're going back all the way to the 18th century in the aftermath of independence, where you have first African Baptist in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, and then you have uh, what becomes Bethel AME Church. Uh, in uh, and now is Mother Bethel in Philadelphia, right? The very seed and seat of American independence, where you have right the emergence of these independent Black churches, which leave their white Baptist and Methodist counterparts, and there's these you know early stories of exiting, not because they disagree with the theology or polity or forms of governance, unless, of course, we think of white supremacy as itself a theology, and and, and that's a conversation to be had. But they largely take the tenets of Methodism, the theology and doctrine, uh, but exit because they were being treated as second-class citizens within the context of that Methodist church. And so the desire to have sort of self-determination over one's spiritual practices is what gives birth to these early independent Black Baptist and Black Methodist churches, and they continue to grow over the long haul of the 19th century, and especially in the aftermath of emancipation and the end of slavery, right? So that by the end of the 19th century, you have, I mean, so much earlier, you had the AME church forming a denomination, you know, uh, as is the case with Methodist, a connectional church, right, that is governed by bishops. But then by the end of the 19th century, you also have Black Baptists, which pride themselves as independent congregations, the free church, forming national conventions, right? And so the growth of these churches throughout the country lead to these larger national bodies that are sites of spiritual and social organization and political mobilization within African-American life. And so Baldwin was very much aware of these distinctions, has also, uh, and, and the sort of tensions between these denominations is also one way to sort of understand his uh, not embracing his father's, stepfather's ministry, but this other form of Christianity that enlisted him on his own terms as a teenager and uh, introduced him to the pulpit. So the, the Pentecostal tradition and the sort of what is now the largest, uh, the largest Black Pentecostal denomination is known as the Church of God in Christ. 
and so it's important to note about sort of the Black church, those denominational differences. Uh, and with regards to Black Pentecostalism, particularly while there is that founding story of interracial worship, by the time Baldwin is in- being introduced to the Black Pentecostal church, it has largely comported itself to the lo- logics of racial segregation, despite its founding story of itself. And so you have the Assemblies of God on one hand as the largest white denomination and Church of God in Christ and a range of other smaller denominations um, that still hold to that story of Azusa as central to their, the, uh, the history, uh, but uh, in terms of social patterns, uh, largely uh, worship uh, under the same sort of racial logics of segregation. Baldwin believed that the church, although embraced by the vast majority of black Americans, was still a space created by white Christians and carried the logic of white supremacy. In the early 1930s, a new black nationalist religious organization called the Nation of Islam was established in the United States. It offered a different origin story than that of Christianity. The Nation of Islam believes in a succession of mortal black gods, each named Allah, and claims that humans were created by the very first Allah. In his second essay, In the Fire Next Time, Baldwin describes a dinner he had with Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam. Muhammad encouraged Baldwin to join the group, but he never did. Baldwin goes on to discuss how black Muslims created a black god in reaction to the white god that Christianity had established in the black community. And yet Baldwin, at the end of the day, refuses that logic as itself is, him, in his estimation, another form of racial hatred and racial provincialism that is still bound by the logics of race. And so for Baldwin, at the end of the day, He takes us in these two different models, right? Meanwhile, narrating a history of Christianity and colonialism and race and religion as divvying up the modern world, right? Which is so powerful. Like he, on one hand, you're in the midst of his teenage experience. And then all of a sudden you're like encountering a story of European colonizers on the African continent, the divvying up of the American Americas, right? So his ability to like, uh, Zoom in, in an ultra personal, powerful way, uh, his experience, and then somehow step back and give us a picture of the marking and mapping of the modern world, right? Um, I think it's something that is especially powerful. And at the end of the day, right, it's both that deeply personal narrative and this deeply powerful account of the degree to which our personal is so dramatically shaped by these larger forces and the American incapacity and unwillingness to wrestle with those larger forces and still uh, its desire to see those larger forces through an account of personal piety (laughs) um, that Baldwin then, right, pushes us towards something else, right? A vision of justice, a vision of love that is trying to find its way out of Uh, just an overly individualized account of race and religion and its mapping of the modern world in American democracy. Let's talk about impact now. So um, what's the afterlife um, of this text and and his work as a whole? He's perceived to have taken sides, right, in support of the civil rights movement. Um, And so on one hand, he's, you know, prey to a critique of being swept up in the political fervors and allowing those to uh, take up 
take over his literary commitments. Uh, and at the same time, as he's doing so, he becomes a spokesperson. This makes him a different kind of celebrity, sort of public intellectual, where, you know, to look at the afterlives of Baldwin is to find him on the Internet on talk shows, right? <laughs> Waxing eloquent about the plight of the Negro, right? Because he has become a public intellectual and a sp- like perceived spokesperson uh, on behalf of the race, right? That he is... Uh, enlisted in this way at this time, that which then again becomes also a point of critique by folks within the space of uh, black power circles who don't see him as radical enough, right? Um, so, th- right, there, certainly as his place of prominence in in the moment of the work makes him both a source, a figure of praise, but also a target of critique from a number of angles. I think what, if we think about his afterlives in the current moment, um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, a figure uh, over the decade, uh, the, the decade of the 2010s, if we, right, if we think about it on the sort of the heels of an Obama presidency, the rise of Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives, and then, of course, uh, the ultimate backlash both to the movement and to the presidency of Obama, right, uh, in, the, in the figure of a, a, a Donald Trump, if you will. What struck me as so powerful about Baldwin's legacy is that when it, it, it almost appeared as we, we as a nation were struggling for language to name the complexities and contradictions uh, that were very much a through line of the longer story of the nation in this particular moment. One could go onto social media and literally Twitter would be littered by Baldwin quotes because almost in the absence of language, his language spoke to the moment in ways that made sense, right? Um, and so we see that uh, as sort of as a lay invocation of Baldwin in the, in, in the sphere of social media. What I think is also interesting, and this in some ways goes back to the the, the 1960s, is uh, something that Baldwin models that a number of the writers within the tradition of the Black arts movement and Black power art and politics attempt to do is they turn to the church as a model of Black independence and a model of Black aesthetic development, right? Uh, And there's this move to sort of disconnect the content of Christianity from the forms of the Black church, right? We could think of the dancing, the singing, the shouting, but an effort to divorce it from the theology and doctrine and dogmas associated with the the churches. I think Baldwin does that, right? This is something that Baldwin, Baldwin, uh, even if uh, is very much exemplified throughout his writing, drawing on the aesthetic forms, while also critiquing the theologies, doctrines, and dogmas, and sort of raises the question of sort of how the church continues to shape uh, Black literary production, Black cultural production, even Black political life, even uh, when uh, these forms are, are, are not taking shape within a position of confession or within the institutional context of Black churches. James Baldwin provided us with exquisite and alive language for thinking about race, religion, gender, and sexuality. His work pushed against the portrayal of Black American experience as particular, instead revealing its universal humanity. I think through not just the fire next time, but through the corpus of his writings, he really 
provided us, us as a nation, uh, uh, us as a, a, a global community with some of the most precise and powerful language for thinking about the ways in which it's impossible to understand the making of and map of the modern world, right? The emergence of the Americas, the Atlantic world, American democracy up till the present day, um, the way in which he invites us and provides us with a language for thinking about race, for thinking about religion, for thinking about also gender and sexuality. Um, I think that is part of why we see uh, the continued power uh, of his works in the present moment is because his language for helping us make sense of who we are um, and for what race and religion have meant and continue to mean in shaping American society uh, fundamentally changed. Uh, certainly changed how I see the world and I think continues to be a gift to so many other readers in providing a language to, to, to understand uh, a world that continues to confound us. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fair On Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.